Hey, I'm Alex. Hey, I'm Parv. And this is China Product. We are two Silicon Valley product managers, and we know how messy it can be. So we're here to talk about the ups and downs of being a PM. It's not always straightforward, but we're here to figure it out together. Hey, Alex, how's it going? No complaints. How's everything? Ah,、uh, you know, it's the、uh, same old, same old. Feature launches, fires, bugs, questions, remorse, sadness. Just kidding. Failure, <laughs> failure, failure. <laughs> Speaking、yeah. of failure, <laughs> yes. Today's episode, we're going to talk about failure as a PM. Yeah. Parv, failure is very hard to define as a PM. <laughs> What would you consider before that? You will definitely fail as a PM. We all will definitely have moments、oh, of、yeah. failing as a、yeah. PM. Even if your track record is clean at this point, it's just a matter of time. <laughs> I think if if you've been in this long enough. So such uplifting messages on this episode. You got to keep it real. You know, <laughs> make sure people know if they haven't failed already. Yeah, they're up next. <laughs> oh boy, it's like a very positive way to start this episode. But still,、uh, I think it's a good way to start the episode. Yeah, I mean, knowing that you're going to fail, how do you、yeah. deal with it? How do you Kind of quantify it as well, because I think for PMs, it's kind of rare that a feature. Just, I mean, sometimes a feature just doesn't go out, but sometimes a feature goes out and it just doesn't work. Yeah, that's why like there's many different versions of failure. Yeah, I'm just yeah. I'm curious, what constitutes failure for you as a PM? What aspects would you consider? I think not launching is for me the, the pinnacle. If I don't launch a product, I get very uncomfortable. When you say not launch, is it based on a timeline, based on a specific date, or just? I think timelines often can shift, but sometimes you just can't launch a product for whatever reason. Either like a key developer left, and then you have to like rehire and pick up and restart from scratch. And sometimes the motivation isn't there. Sometimes there's something really critical that you missed, especially legal, that you essentially try to launch. And then legal or security, some other team blocks. Essentially, the biggest kind of I think reason that I see something that's not able to be launched is there was something that wasn't uncovered during the requirements process or during the kind of the initial scope. And then after it's built or when it's like half building, you finally uncover that one team has an issue with what you're building, and then needs you to completely overhaul requirements, change it, or essentially cause you guys to go in a direction that just doesn't make sense. Interesting. So when you say failure or not launching, you're you're there, but then for some reason or the other, you just completely can't cross can't, the finish line. Can't cross the finish、like、line. You can see the finish line. You're like maybe a foot from the finish line. You just have to hit the release button, but you can't for whatever reason. That's I、uh, think there's like different levels. That's okay. Interesting. I would say that's like number one, and that one feels awful. I remember those for years. Really? Yeah. But yeah, at Expedia, oh man, I have lots of stories. But that's like the worst. I think for me, and then there's like other ones where you actually launch a product and the product doesn't do what you expect. That one, I think, then you kind of tweak. You try to like tweak into it, and sometimes you just keep tweaking. And a year later, you look at it and you're like, "We spent a year. We didn't move the metric. We didn't、mm. do what we wanted. Now we got to pivot." Yeah,、but、I wouldn't. I'd still like argue that maybe it isn't. It's a failure, but it's not maybe a bad failure because you learned a bunch and hopefully you can take that into the、yeah. pivot and you can kind of continue forward. And then maybe the third one, if there is a third one, is you just weren't able to sell the idea.、Mm, interesting. I think essentially, like, but you feel it's business critical to have some feature, something that you're going to launch for the users, and you can't sell that idea to the stakeholders. You can't get buy-in to even get that off the ground. That's maybe not that common if you have a good case, but sometimes with macroeconomic conditions, 
projects being cut all the time, it's hard to prioritize projects that you think are super important for the business, but the business isn't necessarily able to allocate resources towards that. Interesting. I mean, yeah, it's like when I think about it, you're, we think about failure, you have this one aspect that's product related, which mm-hmm. is not launching, not performing. So you, you feel like you've failed as a PM because you weren't able to get the product to do what it wanted to do, mm-hmm. either by not launching or just not shifting the metrics the way it did. But then there's the other piece where you can potentially feel like you've failed is the process part of it, the interpersonal mechanics of product management, where... Like one of the stakeholders you missed. One of the stakeholders you missed, yeah. One of the stakeholders you missed, or you had an idea and you had some thoughts, you had a case, but you weren't able to get the alignment. I think it's like, I would say like macro failure versus micro failures, like the product not launching, I would say as like a macro failure, but then in the day-to-day, not being able to get the alignment that you want from a product perspective that you needed can also feel like those micro-failures. That's a good way to look at it. Like, essentially, a bunch of micro-failures may lead to a macro-failure, but day-to-day, you don't really see it. A macro-failure is maybe once. Yeah, once in a... I mean, you don't launch products every day, right? That's true. I think that's a good way to look at it. Yeah. I mean, for me, when I sometimes think about failing, I know it's a strong term, but when I think about those micro-failures, I've had moments where I've walked out of a meeting and I've felt like I didn't get it to a place where I wanted to get to. I failed as a PM in getting the alignment or getting the buy-in or getting the scope uncovered or just like small things that I was hoping to get out of it. And I didn't. And so I was like, sometimes I see that as a failure on myself as a PM. I mean, to me, I feel like there's just so many levels. And I think that's why I would say like, maybe it's a different way of looking at it in micro versus macro. But I know that's where my head sort of goes to when I think about failure. Yeah, I think it's also just so ambiguous. It is, yeah. I mean, the rule itself is so ambiguous. I mean, everything is so ambiguous about it. So I I think even failure is ambiguous. Oftentimes, say you had like a target metric. You're like, we're going to increase conversion rate by 20%. And then you increase conversion rate by 15%. 15% is still fantastic. Yeah. So is that a failure or were you guys aiming too high to motivate the team? You failed. Yeah. I'm 5% short. Yeah. It represents uh, millions of dollars in the business. Yeah. So I think that's the other thing is like metric failure. I think often folks won't necessarily align to, especially if you have really ambitious metrics, which arguably you always should. And then those the more like micro failures day to day, you didn't get the alignment, that kind of thing. Yeah. So I think there's, there's so many ways to look at it. Maybe there's a hierarchy in some sense, not doing your core job or not being able to do your core yeah. job because of something that's out of your control. Yeah. It feels the worst. That's the macro. But then to lead up to there, you have a bunch of micro things and sometimes you just get blindsided. Yeah, you do. But again, the one thing that I've learned is it's part of the job. It's part of the process and it's not a bad thing. It's not something that you need to take back as a negative to your product well, management style. It's how you learn. That's how, how you, you learn. Yeah. Honestly, whenever you started a new company, you're going to have some macro failure because you didn't know something, some core part of their process. Yeah. And then you don't make that mistake again. That's true. You I, make different ones. Yeah. You make different <laughs> ones. Yeah. Common mistakes you make as a PM. Yeah. But no, that's true, right? It's it's a heavy word, but it's not necessarily meaning that you're a bad PM or you've done something wrong. It's just you make mistakes. You can potentially not get to where you wanted to, but it'll happen and it's just part of the process. Yeah. And then it's a matter of owning that yeah. failure. Yeah, that's true. Owning the failure, understanding what happened, how to improve it, how to avoid it in the future. Yeah. Essentially a really effective postmortem. Yeah. Yeah. I guess if you think about the context of some of the failures that we talked about, both micro and macro, what do you think are the reasons that one might fail as a product manager? I think 
the biggest thing, at least that I've seen, okay, to go to like the Expedia <laughs> example, which is like, I'm still salty about so many years later, is we made this product and then the name was identical to another product in a different country. So we oh. couldn't get the trademark. Okay, we chose this name. We thought it was a good name for the product. And then the lawyers came back and were like, hey, this is trademark in the UK. Like, you're going to have to change the name. So we changed the name. And then the new name also was trademarked. But we didn't find that out for another month when they did another trademark search. Oh. And then at this point, the lawyers are like, maybe we just don't. Essentially, you speed it. Like, do we just want to maybe keep this internal? We don't launch it external. We see how it does internally before we launch. And then ultimately, it was like, launch internally. It did really well. Cut up. Segmented out into different things and then kind of never sees the light of day. What am I? What are, what are you supposed to do as a PM there? It's like, well, we chose the wrong name. I guess I could have done a trademark search internationally, but like some things they're outside of your control. Yeah, that's kind of like a, a bad reason. But then what you learn, what I took away from that is talk to the lawyers first. What is what are lawyers concerned about related to a launch? Because some products are not worth the business risk or the legal risk. Yeah, to launch, especially this is like an Expedia Labs project. Are they going to risk the wrath of some UK vacation company? For an Expedia Labs company, there's no ROI for them. So I think understanding where your product fits into the larger ecosystem and then understanding some of the risks that the company would have to take in order to launch that. Interesting. So it's like, I mean, if I were to look at that as why one could fail is just like broadening the stakeholders or the involved people at the right time early on, just making sure that we have, I think that's such a common sort of reason for you ending up at a point later in the game, which is you didn't have the right folks in the right room yeah. at the right time. Yeah, exactly. And you want to get as many people sort of together and as right to stakeholders. Know who's gonna, who can kill the project. Some teams always have a trump card. Legal always has a trump card. Security has a trump card. <laughs> and maybe accessibility in some in a lot of organizations. So like those are the three folks that hold the trump card to just auto kill. So make sure that they're kind of bought in. Yeah. That's part of a good product manager's processes, right? You're thinking about those stakeholders from day zero, not going in six days in about to launch and you're like, oh, wait, let me just reach out to them and see if there's anything. That's a good product manager. Well, that's also the result of failure, right? It's you learn that, learn. yeah. Yeah, because now they're always in the requirements reviews because I'm not trying to make that mistake again. <laughs> that's true. It is, I think, one of those reasons that I align with as well is just not having the right people in the room at the right time and getting that information. And the, the hardest part is, especially when you first start at a new company or even for the first year or two, you don't even know who the right yeah. people are. That's true. So you got to ask everyone to make sure, hey, is everyone here who should be here? And really make sure. Can you sure, add anyone who is not yeah, here? Please add people. <laughs> Modify the invite. Do whatever you need. Yeah. And I feel like even after years being there, there's always someone who gets missed. And there's a Slack message that comes in. Oh, yeah. After you launch, all the escalations <laughs> from other, other people who got yeah, did angry. You do, did you think about this? Did you make sure you did this? Do you have this thing? Oh, yeah. Every time. Yeah, but That's why launch is the beginning. <laughs> launch is the beginning. Yeah, I know. For me, that kind of connects to another sort of this reason why I think sometimes failure becomes part of the process is just connected to that. You know, of course, when you think about the important steps, you want to communicate, you want to collaborate with people, you want to be able to work cross-functionally, a lot of these important pieces. But I would scratch all of that and just say one of the reasons is just not communicating. Yep. Under-communicating, not communicating, just Please, I mean, I just remind myself this every single day. Like every morning, I feel like I have to say this to myself. Just communicate. Yep. Please share anything. Make sure everyone's getting looped in. Make sure everyone has the right information. Everyone has all the information. Over-communication is not a problem. Yeah. Share out that information. I know we talked about this in one of our episodes around mistakes that I made as a PM. And 
But I think it's one of the reasons why you don't have the right stakeholders that get in or you don't have the right people looped in is you're not communicating. You share something which you think is not, or you don't share something which you think is not important. So someone doesn't get information about it. They don't bring in the right people. I've had instances where I shared an update or I shared some documents to try and get alignment. And then based on something that's in that communication, my stakeholders looped in other stakeholders. Yep. And they were able to bring out my flaws or some of the flaws in the argument or in the case or in the strategy and the document. So I know people don't like to over-communicate. There's always this like backlash when you're over-communicating. Yeah. But I don't know how often there's backlash for over-communicating. I think what happens is if you communicate if you a lot. everyone, add here, add channel. Well, people stop reading. Backlash. I think, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. If you do that, if you just send out emails, people just don't read them. And yeah. that's the other thing is you can over-communicate. But then if people don't read the email, so then there's this art of like, how do you get the right people to actually like read it, internalize what you just said? Yeah. Just confirming if you've read my email. <laughs> Please res- respond with hippopotamus. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I think, I mean, it's connected to the piece that you were talking about, right? It's just right stakeholders and then being able to communicate with them. I think usually a lot of failures can potentially be traced back to not having yeah. the communications with the right people. Yeah, especially in larger organizations. I think at startups, not being able to launch is, I feel like in my experience, it's mostly been, I was too ambitious. I think for big companies, I didn't communicate enough. I think at smaller companies is you weren't as aware of the team's capabilities and what the team could Mm. do. And also the team and everybody is very ambitious in startups. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they don't necessarily have the rigor to tamp down expectations. So you shoot for the moon and then you don't even land in the stars. You didn't even get out of orbit. And then you got to like delay your timeline and sometimes ah, you just have to call it. So I think interesting. there's like different levels of maybe failure at different parts or different size of an organization. But that's such a good point. As a PM, you don't want to overpromise and underdeliver, right? Like that's failure. Oh, yeah. What you just said is a great example of that where you promise something against unrealistic delivery parameters. It could be a timeline. It could be resourcing. It could be anything you use that information and made like a decision based on that to say you're going to get something out and that could be over promising on scope over promising on timeline on delivery and that's honestly this is like the, failure the easiest way to like avoid failure is probably just meet expectations <laughs> but it's also the saddest way to get anything done no one ever does something incredible by like lowering expectations to the point that they can slip in a kind of shitty product Right? Yeah. There's an art to it. There's right? an art to it. I think it, yeah. definitely at big companies, basically everyone's camping down to expectations, lowering their metric targets, lowering everything so that they can exceed it and look really good. I also feel like there's a part of, in a big organization, folks have put in the reps and they've learned from experience enough to understand when someone might be overshooting. Or like they've seen oh, yeah. so many war stories that they understand when someone might be deviating or like overpromising and they kind of come in to say, Are you really going to increase conversion rate by yeah, 50%? Yeah, exactly. Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> But I think it's one of those causes, right? I feel like when you think about failure is, and I've been there, I have promised delivery with respect to a certain timeline cadence. And if I were to look at it objectively from when I said I would deliver and when I delivered, I failed. I did not meet the timelines that I'd set. Of course, there were learnings from it. There were ways that we pivoted and or we worked through to still make it in time for the actual launch. We were able to deliver milestones or pieces that were still working. But going in T minus 60, six months ago, I had promised something at a particular time and I didn't. And that was because of me, again, not understanding some of the mechanics and over-promising in some sense yeah, or over-committing also. And if I were to look at it objectively, as I said, I technically have failed or did not deliver. So I think that would potentially be a root cause. 
Yeah, I think expectations, communication, there's a lot of these ways and not having the right people in the room, like there's all these kind of different levels of failure and different kind of results to yeah. those. But like the biggest failures is I think, again, like not launching the product, but then the result, that's kind of the end result of, again, all these micro, yeah, micro failures. failures. Yeah. You didn't communicate, you didn't set expectations appropriately. All these little things kind of lead up to the big things. And I don't know if you can identify, like you can kind of get this feeling in your gut when you're like, oh, I really hope this works. And you kind of cross your fingers and close your eyes, but... I don't know. I, sometimes sometimes it works out. Related to that, there's this other thing also, I think that can sort of lead you down the path of potentially failing is just like assumption, assuming things. Oh, yeah. I mean, kind of relates to everything we're talking about. Like you're assuming that your timelines are fine or you've made assumptions in your solution or your problem space that haven't been validated or you haven't communicated or you just, I mean, they're just not right assumptions, but you make them and those assumptions are the sort of Jenga block that brings everything down. Yeah. We had this project recently where we had two engineering teams and they, one team was supposed to hand off to another team. But there's this gap. Who's going to make the handoff API between the two teams? Oh. And then <laughs> I was like, well, you guys are going to figure this out. And they were both like, yep, we're going to figure it out. And then we go to launch and then the handoff isn't there. No, Both, both of them thought that the other, assumed that the other engineer was going to make the handoff. So there was no handoff. There was no way to transfer the data from one team to the other. Well, <laughs> so, so it happens all the time. And of course, being the product manager, this is my fault because I did not verify, I assume, that they, <laughs> they had figured this out. Yeah, I mean, assumptions. I mean, I remember one, for me, it was a different aspect of assumption. I think it was around one of the projects I was, I had assumed particular member or user motivation when I was thinking about a product experience. And we went on a path and thankfully we were, able to pivot into the user research scenario. So we put up some wireframes. And of course, we had an assumed intent and we were building our wireframes with respect to that. And the design team and myself, we put it in front of our users to sort of get an understanding of just preliminary feedback on the experience. And we uncovered an intent that was completely different from what we had or what I had assumed. And I mean, we were just so thankful that it was, we caught it in time where we were able to take it back and iterate and, and move forward but in that sense I got lucky but sometimes you don't sometimes you make assumptions and you just and I guess that's also the, a skill that you own as a PM as you grow as you put the reps in your assumptions become better and stronger and you're better at knowing when to make assumptions uh, exactly to make assumptions yeah, yeah, so that's true that's true a senior PM is really just like a bunch of scars yeah. have accumulated over the years from all these little failures all yeah. these big failures to make sure that they know what to do and what definitely not to do. Yeah. As you sort of put in those reps and those scars that keep coming in, you kind of realize what can I assume, what I shouldn't assume. And yeah. as you grow in your career as a PM, you just, what you're learning is learning how to make better assumptions. Well, you also know where the assumptions you can't make and the assumptions that often lead to a failure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I mean, I think all of this is, is kind of like at the core of, as a PM, potential reasons. And then there's another one that keeps coming up. And I think this one's, more well-known in some sense. I know a lot of product managers, are think companies think about this and it's ingrained in the way we think, but it's just when you end up focusing much more on the solution side of things rather than the actual problem. I think we talked about it in a couple of episodes as well, where you just build because you've married to the solution and you're like, this is it, this is what we're building, but you never focus on the actual underlying problem. That's like a big failure point. 
It's a huge failure point, and it's also a very common young or junior PM kind of thing. Because the solution is always where the PMs love the solution part. I know. I love myself a good yeah. solution. Yeah, it's always <laughs> like where you kind of gravitate towards. You yeah, see it's this tangible, a lot. right? Yeah, like you see this a lot with cutting-edge technology like blockchain and VR and all this stuff, and everyone gravitates towards the solution. Yeah. But that's where the issue is because oftentimes you're trying to solve like an easy problem like, how do I take payments? VR is probably not the right payment <laughs> solution there it's probably something else maybe like a phone yeah or maybe it is blockchain in that case yeah exactly. working backwards from the solution ends up being it's hard and i think that's a skill another skill that you own as a pm is like you don't want to work backwards from a solution yeah sometimes the problem is like i want to make a vr thing okay well <laughs> then you got to find problems in that space i think a lot of times pms of course because mm-hmm. we tend to make technology but also like just like a lot of startups they go solution first instead of really honing in on the core problem you're trying to solve yeah often there's many simpler ways to solve a critical problem and that's why i feel like this one's so common and you hear it a lot when you're in pm articles or books blog posts but as much as you hear it it's still so easy to fall into the trap of being like wow like yeah we can make like we can use a 3d asset we can rotate yeah. it the user can enter this vr space and then you're like well what are we trying to do we're just trying to show them what the product looks like. <laughs> Can we just show them pictures? Oh, yeah, I guess that would work. It's like, okay. You do really need six months of work to build something that can show them the packaging of yeah. this device. Yep, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. And I'm guilty of it. Like, even after yeah, years, of course. something comes to mind and you just use that as a solution. And you're like, oh, this is amazing. This is it. This is what you're building. Okay, how do I? overfit this into the problem space and then you start working backwards and you're like this is the solution and this is what i want to build towards and then you in some sense fabricate the problem and then you convince yourself that's the most dangerous part you convince yourself yeah you convince yourself that like the solution is the right solution for this problem that you also made up because you wanted to do the solution and you can't see it any other way and then you go down the rabbit hole and then yeah you need need that person to catch bullshit on that yep that's why I feel like I know we talked about this but I wish there was sometimes bad product management oh yeah bad BMing yep someone who's not your manager or boss you explain the idea to and they're like Alex what are you what are you talking about like just do this (laughs) yeah I think product reviews that's why I feel like are good forums for this but again as a PM hopefully it's not a mindset that you're falling into frequently and you're able to detach yourself from that and it's more problem-oriented and focused. I think maybe solution focus is good for fun, but not as a professional <laughs> when you got like a whole team kind of waiting on you to execute on something. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's like good to play around with like blockchain, good to play around with the technology, but... If I were to speak in Alex terms, it's good for side projects. Yeah. <laughs> not not for your real yeah. 9 to 5 PM gig, if yeah, that's what it don't is. Don't allocate millions of dollars of company resources <laughs> yeah. to do something. <laughs> that's true. Again, as we said, like you will fail as a product manager. There are going to be these micro and macro failures. You'll go through them. But how do you handle these? As a PM, how do you think about handling a failure? Communication. Honestly, I think it first communication is the key to everything, guys. Communication. Uh, Honestly, it is before and after the expectations with communication. (laughs) Yeah. Communicate and just accept. I think there's different tracks. Do you want to accept the blame? I think it's always better to accept the blame as the product owner. I think people just respect that more. I I feel like, yeah, you can fall into the trap on who caused it, why it happened. It's not worth it. If you're the product manager, it's your fault. Yeah. No, it doesn't matter what happened. Own the mistake. Yep. And share the failure. And figure out what the next steps are, right? I would own the failure. Share the failure? <laughs> I was like, yep, this is my bad. You know, I didn't catch this thing that I have no technical understanding of, but it's okay. It's my fault. I shouldn't have made assumptions. And then try to understand what went wrong 
how it went wrong, how to put processes in place to yeah. make sure it doesn't go wrong. Yeah. Communicate that to leadership so they still have faith in you. Yeah. Basically share the failure. What went wrong? Yep. There's a tendency to just hold back on something. You just close your eyes hoping it goes away kind of thing. Yeah, or, it doesn't happen. Yeah, it is. If a moment comes, you're a PM and some shit hits the fan and you're in this situation, I think it's always better to just share that, bring that forward, communicate that. And then in addition to that, plan out the next steps. What are the mitigation that you can think of, you can put in place, communicate that as well. I think hiding from it or delaying that information share out that is also because everyone knows, right? Yeah, everyone already everyone knows, find, or they'll find out. Yeah, they're gonna find out. It's hard. Like someone's gonna ask the right question at some point. Yeah, and then are you gonna say, "Yeah, this thing that uh, I I didn't land three months ago." You know, <laughs> I didn't tell anybody. Yeah, but yeah, it's just it's not a it doesn't fly. Yeah, so it's better to own it, communicate it, and then internalize the learnings that you had, but also actually communicate that. Yeah. With, the whole team with everybody so that some process can be updated. Yeah. There's just no point in playing the blame game. Especially as a PM, you own it, right? Yeah. You can blame whoever you want. You're just going to make it look bad because at the end of the day, you're accountable. Yeah, that's true. I know that's 100%, I guess. Yeah, well, there's a good saying, the failures are yours, but the wins are theirs. Yeah. I've heard it in pass the fame, take the blame. Yep. There's different variations of that same yeah. sentiment. But yeah, that's true. And I think it's good for the team too. I agree. Like, there's no point. Yeah. There's no point. There's no, it's not productive. Yeah. Everyone just kind of resents <laughs> the PM who's points, points yeah. the finger. I mean, what are you going to get out of it, right? Like it's just not worth it. But I think one of the key things that you hit there is just failures are moments of learning. And I think one of the key things that you can do as a PM, of course, you're learning from your product, but learn from your failures. Like that's... I would argue you're, you learn a lot more from failure. Yeah. Fail, learn, iterate. Yeah. It's the, fail, new, learn, iterate. the new cycle. But examine what went wrong. Was it a wrong assumption? Was it the wrong problem you're focusing on? Was it just different sort of stakeholders needed more alignment? Just take that chance or the moment to really like dive deep into it, figure out where some of the mistakes happened and then use that as a building block for your next project. I think it's also good. To, maybe I'm the only one who does this, but I like I write like myself like my own retrospective of what did I do wrong as PM. Oh, I have oh, like a bunch I do that in my personal journal. Yeah. <laughs> what you do? No. I do a retrospective <laughs> on, for me, it's called journaling and it's a retrospective on life. What I did wrong. Oh, I see. I see. All okay. this, okay. all I, these I, years. I, I felt lonely for a second there, but I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 I mean, because I feel like I have like maybe seven entries, which is maybe like seven too many, but like each one is what I failed on. This is like, I don't share it with anybody. But this is your rule or this is like... This is like, no, purely for myself. When I have monumental macro failures, what did I do wrong? Oh, in life? No, no, no. Well, mostly for product. I mean, I only make products, right? So. Oh, okay. So one of the first one was when I we decided to shut down my company. Oh, interesting. So that was what went wrong. Oh, uh, like got it. Got it. Me, the macro, so my company was hydrogen fueling yeah, for cars, yeah. right? Electric cars were a thing at that point. So uh. It doesn't make sense. Okay, like why did I think that hydrogen would do well? Oh. when electric cars were going to do well. What was the steps? What did I do to determine that this was the right hypothesis? And why was that hypothesis incorrect? And how can I avoid kind of trying to skate too far in advance of where the puck is? Because like, in that case, maybe hydrogen is a thing, but it's not going to be a thing, at least for... Like, there's fundamental problems with hydrogen. I had a fundamental hypothesis that was proved wrong. So going forward, anytime I take a chance like that, like make a company, prove out the hypothesis devil's advocate and like all these like checks to like reduce the, the odds of such a monumental failure of wasting like four years five years of my life i guess it's a such a good tool there right is a personal retrospective because also you can be brutally honest it's your personal post-mortem 
in some sense. Often in big companies, you have basically every failure, you have a retrospective yeah, team, but no yeah. one wants to shit on one person. Yeah. Everyone's trying to be like kind of walk on eggshells, but you're the PM. Ultimately, it is your fault. So being really honest personally, like not having to sugarcoat things, I think yeah. is, is super helpful. And also looking back at those failures and like low points. You can blame points. anyone you want in that personal retrospective. No one's going to read it. Or you could, but <laughs> it's always it's always me. <laughs> no, but I feel like I did not do this or I, I mean... When I say I don't do this, for me, it's journaling, which is just like yeah, a broader, it's, it's functional, broader it's the same thing. thing. It's like every day you have microfilms, micro, which I would argue is like much faster documentation. But for me, it's not just product management. It's well, it's like, everything. It's, it's everything. But I do want to take this back from this conversation. I think I want to try this out for myself. Well, hopefully you don't have to. <laughs> I mean, for, even for the micro ones, right? As a PM, in my PM role... And I, I know a lot of people who do this like at the end of the week, they kind of check in what they did. Like I used to do that. The retrospectives at the end of the week? Yeah. I used to do that. I found... It wasn't that useful. I remember at one time I spotted, I was really tired for like four weeks. I was essentially getting burnt out and yeah. I could see that in the retrospective. And then I'm like, okay, I should do something about it. But then the retrospective wasn't the impetus. I already knew I was getting burnt out. Yeah. I was just documenting my burnout and I could see the decline, but that didn't really help me. I didn't really learn anything from the documentation of it. Interesting. I, I feel found. like maybe there's a behavior science principle here, but I'm curious to see doing the same experiment, but trying to do a retrospective after you've gone through a micro or a macro failure. So it's not a time-based thing. You're not doing it every week, but you're doing it right after something that you've realized was a failure on your part and then trying to... So it's action-triggered, not time-triggered. And I'm curious. I want to try that out. I feel like that's going to be an interesting experiment to see yeah. your it's actually post-mortems. Like if you do it every week, it, I feel like it loses a lot of its value. Interesting. At least for me. It, it really? Because I was like, yeah, I'm getting burnt out. Like, What am I going to do? Sleep more? Like, Not work as much? <laughs> yeah. Okay. And then... You have a bunch of micro failures, which also typically leads to getting burnt out. But yep. I agree. I think like having it based off some event makes a lot mm -hmm. more sense. Yeah. But then it's um, also confined. Yeah, exactly. It's a good one. So if anyone there is trying to think about how you learn from these failures, I think this is a great example of using some of those failure points to do like a personal postmortem or a retrospective to see why. Write out your assumptions, your hypothesis, and why you failed, how you failed, what you can learn from that, and then just try and take that back to your next project. So expensive lessons. Yeah, expensive super, lessons. Super valuable, at least yeah. document. I mean, when I think about all of this, there's this way of how you protect the project from a failure. You're a PM, you are building something, and there's a potential of it failing. I feel like this episode wouldn't be complete if we didn't talk about this. And we link, I link in the episode notes as well. But Shreyas Doshi is a fantastic PM, great content online. One of the things that he wrote about a while back was just pre-mortems that he used to conduct when he was at Stripe. So very similar to post-mortems, but you are discussing or you're getting the team together to discuss earlier in a project's life cycle, what could be reasons of failure. So before the execution even begins, you've gotten the group together to figure out what are the reasons that you would assume or you would think of where our execution would fail. Yeah, I read that and I was thinking about it it's such a fantastic approach that he talked about it the way he was using at stripe and i was reading that and it was just fantastic to see yeah, like that perspective like, when you apply it to like your failures you're like yeah i could have predicted a lot of these failures i think even the recent failure i was talking about with the two engineering teams who yeah. didn't hand off we all called it out as the biggest risk of the project <laughs> we all knew it was a risk but i never like confirmed it yeah so i think this is a good example you have certain things you document what the most likely result the pre-mortem yeah. is yeah yeah and then you make sure to follow up with those key risk areas. And of course, the tweet has a lot more information. And he talks about how he did it at Stripe with templates and everything. But it's such, 
I think it's a fantastic way to go into any project is if something is critical enough where execution or failure can be big I think pre-mortem is such a fantastic way to sort of possibly predict some of that and reduce the likelihood. Yeah, reduce the likelihood. Yeah, or even abandon earlier because I think a lot of times in the case of like a failure being like legal or one of these trump card organizations, you can just reach out to them earlier and they'll give you a go no go decision pretty early based yeah. off initial kind of specs or requirements or discussions. Just initial lay of the land, like yeah. they might know stuff about some of the legal landscapes that you don't know, and they're just like, oh, sorry, we can't. enter this market it's just not germany a... says no yeah so. yeah something like that exactly yeah. but again we'll link to it i think it's a fantastic resource and a great way to think about projects that you're going into but yeah i think you will fail it's going to happen no need to feel bad about it but it's all part of the process yeah when you become a scar monster that means you're a senior director <laughs> pm so we pcpo yeah. uh, it's all just reflective of those scars now yeah, yeah. It's not the way I want to end as a too negative of a view I feel like <laughs> and we're out. <laughs>